My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Have you ever heard of the peculiar volleyball-sized chrome-finished metal sphere that puzzled Jacksonville, Florida in 1974? Was it just an estranged machine component, or did this oddball have a mind of its own? Could it be a result of an unusual and rare termination of a currently unknown plasma phenomenon? And if so, could it be related to the gimbal go-fast footage of tic-tac uaps recorded by fighter pilots flying in the exact same area exactly 40 years later here to ponder these and many more questions with us is chaz of the dead who's written several books and articles based on his explorations of the Fortean phenomena that surrounds us here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast i'm mystic mark thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode with chaz of the dead What no one seems to have brought up in all the discussion about these famous UFO videos, whether they're real, whether they're fake, what's going on, is the fact that those videos were filmed while they were doing training missions off of the USS Roosevelt, while the Roosevelt was stationed at Mayport in Jacksonville, Florida. That go-fast video where that sphere is filmed, hauling ass, hauling ass in the direction of the coast, in the direction of Fort George Island, where 40 years ago, this family found a metal sphere. The Navy at that Naval Station investigated in depth this metal sphere. And so it's this piece of information. That was the first one where I was like, what what the fuck? How has no one one brought this up yet? (laughs) You know, this, but there's this thing that again, pops up again and again in paranormal locations. These things happen almost on cycles. They pop up over time. 40 years before that video is filmed, a metal sphere that moves on its own is found in the exact same vicinity. And the Navy, the same naval station that records those videos, is the ones who investigated that sphere. What does that mean? I don't fucking know. It's bizarre. Welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We're here with Chaz of the Dead, returning champion, 
author and explorer extraordinaire, been to far more continents than I have. And, and I, last time we talked on our show, Illuminati Confirmed, you said you, you're planning a trip to Africa. Did you do that in the time since, or are you, is that still on its way? No, that's that's going to be the third book coming out. I've I've got a a whole trip planned, still working on that funding, you know, raising money and stuff like that and that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's in the works. That so hopefully by next year I'll be over there for a few months, looking into a you know a case no one's ever heard about before. Right on. Yeah, I, I have seen some paranormal stories. Without letting the cat out of the bag, maybe just nod your head if I nail it, but is there any chance you're going after ancient dinosaurs that are stuck in the Congo? Oh, wow. That's actually, that's weird. That was your guess because that's not quite what I was working on. Not quite there, but I am for this case researching an angle about snakes and giant snakes and snake deities, which throughout central and southern africa are are pretty prevalent huh. so that's an interesting pretty good fucking guess i gotta say thank you thank <laughs> you and thank that you there's an element of that to it <laughs> well thank you for disclosing that much it, you're bringing to mind something i just saw i don't know if you're familiar with bbc wildlife documentaries but i like that if there's anything i'm gonna oh, watch yeah. i'll watch stuff like that and there's this series that came out about five years ago called spy in the wild where they basically spend like a crazy amount of time making these really realistic looking drone animals. So they'll have like, Oh, that's cool as hell. It's yeah. Very cool. They'll have like, they had a spy hippo, a spy crocodile. They had a spy leopard. I mean, they run the whole gamut. Every animal, they make a little spy drone and they get really, really, really close up cool footage. And it's very interesting to see how the animals react. 10 out of 10 times the animals figure out pretty quickly it's a camera <laughs> but the reason yeah. i bring this up is because they they got this really amazing footage of gardener snakes coming out of the ground in canada and what's really amazing about these snakes is the way they move on top of each other to get warmth they're all like moving in this one like network mm -hmm. of like slithering like individual snakes that all like are moving in this giant mass towards you know wherever they're going and it made me think of ley lines and this concept yeah. of like the nagas and like how this energy is moving through the earth in that similar way possibly maybe that's why we have this association with ley lines and snakes yeah it's it where where that's kind of popped up in my research kind of recently and i not haven't dived full into this angle, but it in kind of relation to bee theory, you know, the go listen to the old episode listeners to get the rundown on all that. But that idea that bees have this kind of weird way of flying and moving that is, you know, mysterious. They say the same applies to certain types of snakes, the way they're able to slither mathematically doesn't check out. Again, there's a mm. weird element of physics or something at play with a lot of that that movement. Yeah, the sidewinders are some really strange snakes. They literally move horizontally or per, per, perpendicularly. I don't know how to describe it. Side to side is how they move. <laughs> and it's very strange. But considering what we're planning on talking about today, I'm glad we started on Spy in the Wild because it is maybe possible to pose a theory that this Beth Sphere 
was a type of spy from another planet, possibly, or a drone or some kind of object from outside of this world, almost like, you know, a fake camera inside of, a, you know, a national park. So yeah, <laughs> let's let's get into it. Tell us the the one hundred and one on the bet sphere. What is this thing, and and how did you come across it? Because you're a Floridian, and this is a story that takes place in Florida, right? So close yeah. to home for you. Yeah, yeah, a little different than my usual mo of of international stuff. But this was kind of my quarantine project. You know, everyone locked down, not a lot of traveling to be done in the last couple of years. So. So I did some traveling inside the States and I did a cross country kind of road trip to different haunted locations and kind of really looking into the like ghost lights and spheres. And of course the Betts sphere or the Betts house where this sphere was located was on that list. And the first time I went out there to find the house, I didn't find it. It's not labeled anywhere. It's kind of a far away. It's hidden behind a no trespassing sign though. No one, it's on state land. No one formally really owns it. But for those unfamiliar with the the Betts case in general, it started in the spring of 1974. There was a family living on this island, Fort George Island, and they their adult son, Terry, he found this big metal sphere one day and he brought it home. And for two weeks, it sat in his home and he thought maybe it was a cannonball or some kind of object of historical significance, but it was sitting in his room one day and he started to play the guitar and it started to vibrate and hum. And shortly afterwards, it began to roll around the house and move with this seeming intelligence. And local media got involved, radio stations, TV channels, the naval base, which is right across. Even J. Allen Hynek, famed father of ufology, got involved and looked into the sphere, not several different times. He had it sent to different labs and things like that. And it was kind of this really, it hit this national you know popularity as a ufo story in 74 and then it was kind of quickly the navy released a statement after jerry betts the owner of the sphere refused to give the sphere over to them they released this statement saying that oh well our tests show that it's just a, a regular sphere there's nothing unusual about it contradicting what they had told her in person and they they went ahead and found a metal ball from a paper mill pulp kind of this weird mechanism, mechanic mechanism, this giant metal sphere would clog and then the pressure was in a different way, it would unclog and allow, I guess, I don't know, paper to travel through. But it was this weird piece of a paper mill and they said, oh, the ball must be one of those. And they even found an artist who lived in Jacksonville who said he lost one and oh, that must be it. Of course, the dimensions weren't exact and things like that. A lot of you know, hearsay. But of course you have eyewitnesses who absolutely say that something weird was going on. One of the best is a radio show host named Ron, I believe Ron Kravitz, kind of hosted the local uh, coast to coast at the time, you know, in the seventies when radio was, was still terrestrial and then weird. He had the late night slot and he would, you know, take UFO stories and paranormal things like that. And so he was naturally interested when this story kind of started blowing up. And so he went out to investigate and went out to the house, which crazy house. We'll get into that in a minute. But, you know, he was wanting to take more pictures of this, this wild looking house. And he was talking to the, the family. The sphere was sitting in the middle of this table and they were like, oh, let's go outside. The light's good. We'll take pictures outside. And as they went to walk outside, the ball like rolled to the edge of the table and like dangled off the edge in a 
this gravity defying way and kind of like rocked back and forth like hey don't forget me like almost like a, a dog or a cat trying to get your attention and that's really how they kind of described it it had this weird kind of pet like mentality though interestingly enough the the Betts family did have a dog and the dog hated the sphere it did not like being next to it so it um, seemed to be but, sentient for lack of a better word or even conscious yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly had this intelligence about it. And anyone who saw it move around, it, it would like follow people around the house and it would react to people, what people were saying. And again, not with like the super intelligence, but like a, a pet, like an animal would almost. And this, the story, it blew up in a really short amount of time, like the span of a month. And it got to the point where like random ufologists were showing up at the Betts family's doors and like knocking and camping out on their property and their phone was ringing nonstop. Jerry Betts, uh, matriarch of the family, she's the one who wanted to, to move into this big old spooky house. And she ran a real estate company and a trucking company. Back in the 70s, you know, this bushy haired, short, charismatic woman really a powerful figure ran for state uh house and they there was this really messed up article written at the time that's like how how will these women keep house if they're elected <laughs> it was like really you know it was tough being a, a bad bitch in the 70s and she was one and really industrious figure and so after a month of this craziness she was like All right, i'm done i'm done with it i'm not talking about it no more the media said it's the Navy said it's a hoax. We'll just go with that. Like, I'm not doing any more public stuff about this. Stop calling my house. Stop showing up at all hours of the night. Leave me the fuck alone, essentially. And, you know, she's kind of maintained that about this case ever since. There's been other journalists and stuff who have gotten in touch, one of whom I worked with, Lindsay Kilbride. She does a great podcast, Oddball. It's like a five-episode documentary series kind of style podcast where she really kind of digs into the story from a, a journalistic perspective. And, you know, I went in from a much more paranormal, <laughs> you know. Which is why. Things like that. I'm glad to have you here for this because, yeah, I, I heard that whole podcast back when I was a delivery driver. It was one of the many strange, weird podcasts that I was disappointed at the length because, you know, there's only you six. More. Yeah, there's only six <laughs> episodes and it's a great show. I recommend anyone who checks this show out, go and check Oddball out. I'm sure it's still available on all the podcast mm -hmm. apps. But there is that feeling of like, oh, I just kind of listened to something that could go on like television on history channel or something like it's got that same formula that a lot of this mainstream yeah. alternative stuff takes which is like just enough information to make you even more confused you learn some things but they mm -hmm. they seem to You're want to question yeah they mm -hmm. they want to leave you with many conclusions to take which is fine not you don't have to be conclusive with every thing you know and that's not really the point of journalism anyways is to always right. find a conclusion but either way you know we in this paranoid conspiracy world we always <laughs> jump to the conclusion of well they're hiding they're hiding you know they're hiding it but i don't think oddball was hiding anything i think they just only looked so far so it's a pleasure to have yeah. someone like yourself who's willing to go further and i think that's what we're going to get into more of today but yeah this is a weird story they, they tried to use one of these magazine skeptoid articles to write it off as a a, mm -hmm. a valve 
that would be in some yeah, kind of like a pump valve. Yeah, mm-hmm. some kind of water pump. So I can imagine they might have like a circular like ball in a device like that to oh, yeah. control the pressure. But this object doesn't seem to be simply just a mechanical part. You know, it doesn't seem like an odd and end part that just made its way off the factory line. Outside of the the strange behavior, is there any other properties to this bet sphere that you found interesting? Well, it definitely seemed to have some kind of internal mechanism. When you shook it, you could hear almost like glass tinkling on the inside, they, they reported. And the Navy certainly seemed interested in it. They, they conducted this first set of reports, and according to, to the family, those reports showed that something was on the inside. There was like some kind of functional mechanical mechanism on the inside, which again, they later told the media the opposite. They said, oh, it's nothing. It's an empty metal ball. So there's that aspect of it. There's also the, you know, whirring noises it made, very similar to a lot of UFO reports. The dog reacted to it. And kind of these details lead to that, you kind of hinted at, that idea that it's a a probe or a spy drone of some kind. What was very interesting to me. Well, there was a couple interesting things to me when looking at this story beyond the oddball perspective, because oddball really looks at it from that perspective. Is it real? Is it fake? Right. That kind of is this some kind of weird fake ball. I'm giving as a paranormal investigator, as I, I tend to do, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to the witnesses and being like, OK, you found a weird ball that moves on its own. Like, let's figure out why. What's going on here? And I found a couple things that are hugely interesting and fascinating that aren't discussed when they talk about this, this Betts case. Right. They talk about the sphere. The sphere is the focus of the, the case. And of course, these metal spheres are seen a lot. And that was actually the first thing I noticed was that metal spheres are seen a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. (laughs) In my trip going across the the U.S., I stopped at Brown Mountain. I stopped in Marfa, Texas, and I was able to see in Marfa some of these ghost lights. I did a psychedelic experiment. I did a two-night experiment, one sober, saw one pretty bizarre light. Second night, we did, you know, some meditation, some kind of that like Stephen Greer sketchy C5 with a little bit of magic mushrooms on top. And man, there were light spheres all over. And there were plenty of people there, you know, not on substances that were were able to witness this as well. And so these spheres, the, the sphere archetype, if you will, is something that's consistent. It pops up not only in UFO cases, but ghost cases as well, both of those, Brown Mountain and Marfa, long before UFO legends, they were considered the ghosts or the lights from lanterns of ghosts, either dead Apaches or, you know, whichever the region apply, Native Americans or Civil War soldiers, whichever it is, <laughs> you know, that that is what they attributed to the lights until modern times. Interestingly enough, these spheres are seen in cryptid cases. We were discussing snakes in Africa. That The reason I was looking into snakes is because I there's this one with a giant glowing light in its head in one region that seems to line up with a lot of other UFO cattle mutilations and things. Further south from Fort George Island here in Florida, there's along the St. John's River, the same river, there's Barden, Florida, where they have the Barden Booger. This old legend of a Bigfoot creature, big hairy ape, classic Bigfoot. It's one key difference. He carries a lantern. He's always got this big glowing light right next to him. And so these archetypes, this light, 
kind of pops up again and again. These fears pop up again and again. And one of the most, if not the most famous fear was, nowadays anyways, is the one that was released most recently in those 2015 Navy videos, right? To the Stars Academy, Tom DeLong. Everyone knows the, the famous video, that saucer rotating, right? The, the black and white. Clearly looks like your classic UFO saucer and it's doing this weird rotating. Well, that was filmed on the same day as one of those other videos, the Go Fast, which shows a metal sphere hauling ass right over the ocean. What no one seems to have brought up in all the discussion about these famous UFO videos, whether they're real, whether they're fake, what's going on, is the fact that those videos were filmed while they were doing training missions off of the USS Roosevelt while the Roosevelt was stationed at Mayport in Jacksonville, Florida, that go fast video where that sphere is filmed, hauling ass, hauling ass in the direction of the coast, in the direction of Fort George Island, where 40 years ago, this family found a metal sphere. The Navy at that Naval station investigated in depth this metal sphere. And so that's this piece of information. That was the first one where I was like, what, what the fuck? How is no one... <laughs> How has no one brought this up yet? <laughs> you know, this we, we all want to have these conversations about drones and is it, you know, China, Russia, is it the Air Force, you know, keeping secrets from the Navy, yada, yada, yada. But there's this thing that, again, pops up again and again in paranormal locations. These things happen almost on cycles. They pop up over time. 40 years before that video is filmed, a metal sphere that moves on its own, is found in the exact same vicinity. And the Navy, the same naval station that records those videos, is the ones who investigated that sphere. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't fucking know. Wow. But it's definitely some Stranger Things shit going on, right? Yeah. Like that's, well, that's bizarre. <laughs> what comes to mind for me immediately and all credit to the higher side chats, I've obviously been keeping up with that show because these two things I'm about to point out. So on the higher side chats, Greg Little, when he was a guest, talked about how these plasma beings, right, are moving in the form mm -hmm. of an orb, right? And they're they're sentient and, and they might yeah, even sentient move. Sentient plasma theory, as I like to call right. it. Right, uh -huh. and they move along ley lines or, or between these megalithic objects. Well, that plus another episode Greg did with this gentleman who has a book about spontaneous combustion called Ablaze. And one of the cool. weirder theories about spontaneous combustion that made a lot of sense to me was that these spontaneous combustion victims, for lack of a better word, in a lot of cases were also on ley lines. So my thought is, what if this bet sphere was like a hardened form of plasma, right? It's a sentient plasma being mm -hmm. because plasma and metal, I mean, they could uh, essentially a metal could become a plasma <laughs> if it's hot enough. So right. who knows? And then think about the heat factor when we think about spontaneous combustion somebody runs into a bet sphere while it's in that superheated state and they're instantly vaporized and turned into a pile of ash and nothing in their home is burnt because it was like this collision between two beings that one is crypto and one is very well known a human being <laughs> i'm glad you brought that up because that kind of brings me into the second big weird how has no one noticed this before about 
the Betts case. And that's the house that is the the backdrop of the case. So the house actually has its own separate paranormal case. But as so often is in the paranormal niche, the UFO guys don't talk to the ghost guys. <laughs> they don't communicate. Right. Well, disconnect. that's like academia. It's all compartmentalized. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so the Betts, I, I call it the Betts Castle because the house, it looks like a castle. It really is this old Trudor style. It The entrance door is through this three-story turret, this conical tower, stone and like that white and wood kind of pattern. It looks, it would look more at home on a hill in Bavaria than it does on this hill in Florida, which again, it's another weird detail. It's built onto the highest point in Duval County in Jacksonville, Mount Cornelia, they call it, but it's not a mountain, it's a hill. We just don't have a lot of them here in Florida, so we tend to exaggerate. But it is the tallest point in the area. And Fort George Island itself is a his- part of a historical cultural park because it's years of history. It's actually where the French Huguenot explorers first land landed. And it's credited as the location where the first Protestant prayer in North America was prayed, wow. which has all kinds of occult implications. Absolutely. No matter what you believe in, you can see the significance of that. Wow. And there was a native population on that island for for hundreds of years before that, the European arrival. And so then in the 1817 to 1800s, it became a plantation. And so there's years and years of history and classical ghost stories. There was actually a fort in the region, Fort Caroline. And they don't know exactly where it was, but Fort George Island, since it's the highest area around, is most likely the candidate. And that was a French fort, and they were all massacred by the Spanish. The Spanish landed a few years later to the south at St. Augustine and marched an army up in a hurricane. And the French Huguenots tried to sail down to St. Augustine during the same hurricane. They passed each other. The Huguenots' ships were decimated, and they all wound up shipwrecked. The Spanish showed up to the fort, basically killed all the (laughs) defenseless settlers. And when they showed back up to St. Augustine, they found this, you know, unarmed mass of shipwrecked men marching back north having to go through St. Augustine. So they went and massacred them too. And that's the reason yeah. St. Augustine's the oldest city in North America, oldest European city in North America, is because they wiped out that French one first. And again, right in this area of Fort George Island. Yeah, and wow. so it's either on Fort George Island or it's across the river, which is the exact location where Mayport Naval Station is, where they built this, this naval station, mm. which interesting again throughout this can i just point out real quick that yes it is interesting the navy tends to and other military groups tend to build on ancient sites but this fort caroline that you just mentioned when you look at a picture it's one of these triangular so that's a a reconstruction a mini reconstruction they've built um, because the original location they're not well i'm looking at a i'm looking at a wood carving with like a a Latin oh, yeah. inscription mm-hmm. underneath. I'm sure you've seen this image. And it is, ve- I mean, I'm sure people who watch Tartarian YouTube videos have seen this image as well. Like, boom, here's a star fort. It's not shaped in the traditional star shape. 
it's more of a triangular, but it is interesting mm-hmm. to look but at. It's got the, the pointed turrets. And, right, yeah, right. Yeah. And so those carvings come from one of the few survivors of that massacre. They were able to load up a boat. And this guy pretty much is the guy who tells the entire story of this failed French colony. And so because of all, all of those things I've just said, the the island started to collect ghost stories. It started to become like, a you know, there's spooky stuff out there. There were early legends of a ghostly white peacock, which might have just been an albino peacock. They do have some peacocks on the island. But if you saw it, it was supposed to be shit. I can't remember if it was good luck or bad luck. One of them. <laughs> so, you know, Let's just say it's good luck, hedge your bets. But other legends formed. There's the legend of old red eyes. And people who are familiar with the paranormal definitely know that red-eyed archetype. My initial experience as a kid, I saw a pair of red eyes under my bed and totally freaked me out. Mm. Next morning, I'm looking for anything electric that could have created this kind of red eyes and really a cartoon almost graphic of like think of those like halloween stickers people put on their windows Mm. it was really like the flaming pointed red eyes and so i was looking for anything electric that could have made that that appear under my bed when my older brother saw what i was doing and asked if i had seen the red eyes because he had had the same experience and so for me that was the moment that oh shit paranormal is weird real even if that was just a shared dream well fuck people aren't supposed to be able to share dreams something something beyond what we know exists but this red eye archetype pops up again and again whether it is a shared dream like that or the mothman bigfoot and a lot of the scarier times has red or yellow glowing eyes this luminescent eye pops up in all kinds of cryptids and paranormal things Well, on Fort George Island, the legend of Old Red Eyes is one that a a slave on the island was killing other slaves, maybe molesting children, kind of Freddy Krueger-esque. And so the other slaves got together and they did a, they lynched him, a a slave lynching of another slave. And so I read that and I was like, that sounds like some shit white people made up to feel less guilty. (laughs) about it but then i did my research and found out that zephaniah kingsley the guy who owned the plantation kingsley plantation you can still visit today and the woods surrounding that plantation in those those woods is where the Betts house is and zephaniah kingsley he was a weird dude he everyone who dined at his his call when he was running the plantation said that paintings giant paintings of new black women all over his his dining hall he had married a bunch of senegalese women and he practiced the senegalese religion um so he could have multiple wives he didn't believe in christianity which kind of made him a pariah around there but he also had some really bizarre racial beliefs at the time and so uh florida was still a spanish colony and the Spanish system was that if you were like mixed race, you were better than, you know, darker skinned people. The lighter skinned you are, the better you stand socially. And a lot of ways in Latin America, that still has that same effect. Zephaniah Kingsley was all on board with this, except he thought that mixed race people were superior than both white and black people, which again, very weirdly progressive 
and accurate at that time. We all know they make the best athletes and musicians. So he had this super bizarre perspective back at the time. And he also was one, uh, he carried this on to his slaves where they had working hours. And after your shift was over, you could work your own job or your own hobby. And eventually you could buy your freedom if you wanted. And he allowed the slaves to settle disputes and things like that amongst themselves. And so the story of old red eyes turns out to potentially be a little more truer than, than we, you know, initially give credit for. It, it might be true that he allowed this, these slaves to solve this internally and this murdered serial killer was, was killed by, you know, fellow slaves. Now, just because he was weird dude, Quentin Tarantino character, doesn't mean he was a good one either. Because after they shut down the transatlantic slave trade, he was still bringing in new slaves. And there was this interesting on-the-record account where they he had a ship full of slaves heading towards his plantation so he could, you know, sell them and distribute them. And it got caught. It got caught by the, the U.S. Navy. You know, they, they caught the ship and they were like, fuck, man, there's 300 slaves on here we can't we can't put them in the base what are we going to do with all these dudes so they just gave them over to Zephaniah Kingsley and they were like don't do this again we know you did this illegally but we can't we, we physically can't handle this many much people so they gave him a little slap on the wrist and told him don't do it again so clearly not he was had his morals uh, well, let's just say his morals were of a window of time that I don't think I, uh, many of us can really understand nowadays. Certainly a weird dude and certainly allowed a lot of weird traditions and stuff to to grow on this island. And of course, there was a Spanish mission on the islands. You had your native religions and of course, that first Protestant prayer. All of this occult traditions and beliefs kind of mixing and melding on this island. And so all kinds of weird shit was reported on this island. And then, you know, Civil War, we go into our early 1900s, we hit the Gilded Age. And that's where they open the Rebalt Club. So Jean Rebalt was that Protestant explorer who first landed. And they opened this club as like a, like a, you know, bougie golf course, fancy, smancy, Gatsby-esque hangout for Jacksonville's elite. And they start building up these fancy houses around the, the island for, you know, rich socialites to move into. And the Neff House, which I now call the Betts Castle, was built during this time period. Nettleton Neff was the man who commissioned it. He was a railroad engineer slash executive based out of, I believe it was St. Louis. And he owned a couple different properties and he wanted a winter home in Florida. He was a member of the Rebalt Club where he made the acquaintance of Melvin Greeley. And Melvin Greeley is considered the dean of Jacksonville architects. You know, back in the, the 1920s when like being an architect was the fanciest, coolest job you could have, you know, Chicago's World's Fair and all that kind of shit going on, right? The, it was a big deal being an architect. So this guy was the big honcho architect of, of Gilded Age Jacksonville. And Neff was like, hey, Greeley, I want you to build this house. I have like these rough sketches. I want this really cool castle looking structure. And Melvin Greeley took the drawings. He drew up professional blueprints, but then he drew his own set of blueprints that 
he was just inspired to draw and said, here's, here's the ones you have, but these are the ones I think, I think this is what you're looking for. I think this is what needs to be built on this hill. Again, it's the only hill in the county. And so they built this spooky looking castle on top of this hill. It's got towers. It's got this grand hall. It has, what is it? Six or seven fireplaces. It's this, this really amazing structure. It has a basement again, something that's not common in a Florida home. It's got, it's a three story home, but it's got, I think what it's 17 level shifts where there's like little step ups and step downs. It's truly, it's kind of like a mini Winchester home in a way where it's got, it, it's, it's a bizarre being in there, just architecture. And then the tragedies happen. Uh, so the Neff family never gets to move into this dream home. It gets built, but Nettleton's wife is visiting a home, one of their properties in Michigan when she dies in what the papers call the mysterious fire. There was never any elaboration on what was mysterious about it, but by all accounts, tragedy for the family. Then Nettleton's oldest son this is a studying at Harvard. He disappears. Two weeks later, they find him in an apple orchard. He had shot himself. And then Nettleton Neff follows suit. One day, he's sitting in his office in St. Louis, and they hear a gunshot ring out. They kick down the door, and he had shot himself sitting at his desk. They had all their boxes and stuff had been sent to this house. They sat in this empty house waiting for them to move in. But in a few months, they all died in these horrible, tragic circumstances. And so no one moved into the house. And the Great Depression hit <laughs> following right shortly. So there was no one to move into this elaborate castle. And the golf course that was there on Fort George Island, this kind of, you know, fancy socialite thing, there and gone in the span of like 10 years, right? Depression hits. No one's there to maintain the golf courses. No one's got funds to do any of that shit. And so this house sits on the hill and it begins to get swallowed by the foliage. And local people take note of this weird fucking house in the woods. They start to notice these weird lights and they hear these phone calls and organ music coming from the home, even though there's never been an organ in the house. All kinds of weird phenomenon. Old red eyes starts to pop up around the house. These old legends of the ghost lady of Kingsley Plantation, they kind of shift and start focusing around this house. And that's when in the 70s, early 70s, Jerry Betts finds out about this big old spooky house on the hill. And she's like, hell yeah, sold. I'll live there. That's cool as hell. And she moves in. And so that was the, the other big thing no one really had talked about. There's, there's a few things online about the haunted Neff house, but no one brings up that the Neff house is the Betts house. And that where the, the home where this sphere did most of its miraculous moving on its own had already had decades of ghostly legends associated with it. People seeing weird things, hearing weird things, you know, kids were daring each other to go up, you know, go up and peer inside the windows, sneak inside back in the forties the and the fifties. And again, all kinds of weird ghostly legends from those times. So you have a haunted house. <laughs> you have an island set on an island steeped in weird occult traditions and histories where this family finds a metal sphere that the nation becomes convinced is a UFO. A, a UFO, a, a archetype UFO that continues to appear in that same location even 40 years later. 
And so that's the true story of the Betts case that I'm trying to tell with this book, this full scale picture of something truly strange going on. You know, you, the, the Betts case has been always reported, oh, something weird happened one spring in 1974, but it's not one spring in 1974. It is as long as Europeans have been recording history at this location, it's been a location of high strangeness, of weird shit going on. And it's it's something that we can't discount. And it's easy. I find myself waking up most mornings being like, man, the UFOs, they're they're made out of bees and they're made by human beings. And they're it's just they're all in a hanger in Nevada. That's that's all it is. And then I remember things like this, places like this. Something else is going on. And maybe it is true. It's it's these craft and they are physically created probes, but then they do something. They do something to our space and our time that's more permanent than one spring in 1974. It's something that permeates throughout our reality longer and more consistently than we we tend to recognize. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, going back to that idea of plasma and metals, what if these plasmas, as they move through the sky, appear metallic and, you know, maybe they leave little things behind like this or or maybe this type of sphere is its own class i mean i think that's the other trouble in the paranormal field is we find out a bunch of information that's so like sparse and it becomes compartmentalized or it becomes homogenized you know what i mean like it's either or when really you know we need to start looking at these things as the same way we look at biological phenomena, they fit in a symbiosis, an ecosystem of their own. We just don't know about that ecosystem because we're not in it. You know, we're, we're only in yeah. like a vestige. And, and that's of it. the the beauty of the plasma theory is that it kind of uh, explains why it's consistently appearing in throughout time. Um, and interestingly, Jerry Betts, before the whole sphere thing, she gave an interview about living in a haunted house and she had all kinds of weird poltergeist like activity but would also see these spheres of light on the property floating around the hill um and she theorized in this newspaper article that oh it must be like phosphorus in the soil or something like she really had a feel that they were some kind of natural phenomenon and interestingly enough one of my chapters in my book follows the saint john's river which it's actually one of the few rivers, it might be one of two or three rivers in North America that flow north instead of south. And all up and down the river, there's these light reports, the Barden Booger we talked about. But there's also the I-4 dead zone where they have more car crashes in this little location than any other location. And there's been ghost lights and UFO lights seen at this location since its construction. And that's usually why the accidents are attributed to and again another ghost light road right along the saint john's river where people drive out and kind of like a dare get chased by this weird ghost light it's something that pops up time and time so the plasma theory definitely addresses a lot of these these issues and a lot of these similarities but just like all of these top-down paranormal theories it, it has its own logical issues I mean, it doesn't really explain the 
abduction experience, the entities, the interactions that are happening beyond. Now, of course, those could be psychedelically induced by being near the, the spirit. Again, we can theorize and theorize, but it's not quite the perfect slot. You have craft that are clearly visually manufactured, right? I, I personally have seen a black triangle craft where, you know, it's, it's got lights on the bottom that look like lights, like human constructed, you know, technology. It's, it's clearly a type of, of technology. And that UFO, that's what the T-30D, that might be a Star Wars ship. I might have mixed that up. But there's, there's a common, there's a name for that one. And it's thought to be a, a human built craft. But the one I saw, I think we talked about it again in that first episode, was under high strangeness circumstances. It was after doing sessions on a Ouija board with mushroom teas and meditation and shit. And then I was hanging out with my buddy a few days later, talking about it. And boom, this thing appears. Way too odd to be simply coincidence. So there's the, the paranormal is certainly this this puzzle and we can try to apply explanations to it, make them fit. But it, the, the, we still haven't found that perfect puzzle piece, though. During this, the research of this book, I found another one of those explanations, another fun puzzle piece to try to make fit. I got to say, I'm not convinced but it was certainly an interesting angle that I felt compelled to investigate. And that is the, well, the researcher, his name's Patrick Jackson, who's out of the UK. He, he calls it quantum paranormal, but I'm not a really big fan of quantum as a label, especially the way he's using it. So I'm going to, we're going to call it ghost code theory because that's his app and that's his device. It's the ghost code device. and. Patrick's on to something pretty interesting. So he's an IT guy, but he's also your kind of like typical ghost hunter, you know, EVP, ghost orbs kind of dude. And he had an experience at the Black Monk house in the UK, the 38 something lane, the famous poltergeist case. And he captured this image of a, a ghost sphere. And Long story short, he's become convinced that these ghost spheres are the same as the spherical UFOs we see in the sky. And that these UFOs are probes, they're scout drones, and that they can turn invisible. They go quantum, which is why I refuse. He uses quantum like a comic book writer uses quantum. You know what I mean? Anytime some kind of magical power. It's it's the same as saying it went super saiyan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't really work for me, but supposedly it enters this quantum state where it turns invisible. And they like to hang out in spooky old abandoned buildings because there's trace, trace DNA from humans and stuff, but not a lot of humans because they give off radiation and shit like that. And so they don't want to kill human beings by being in populated homes and stuff. Well, that, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you about. Because you joked about how Florida doesn't have any mountains. You guys brag about the heights of the hills. And Connecticut's kind of like that, too. <laughs> if I tried to talk about a Connecticut mountain as someone who lived in, like, Maine or New York, they'd be like, Psh, I'll show you a mountain. But anyway, right. in Florida, you do have these things called shell middens. And 
in the rest of the United States, mounds would be places where objects and people would be buried for that. Maybe the same effect, right? This haunted house effect where whatever happens there, it's like a portal between this world and the afterlife or this world and another dimension or a place where these beings can connect with us. So my assumption is that maybe in Florida, an island like St. George or Fort George Island would have shell middens, which would be that sort of mound. Actually covered in shell middens. Wow. Um, So it is a mound, basically. (laughs) Yeah. You see, you you drive through it, you see the oyster shells stacked because it is, it's been occupied, I think, the Tumukwa tribe was around for 5,000 years, and it's believed to be one of their earliest settlements. So it, it dates back quite a long time. And Mount Cornelia, the hill that this house is built on, is thought to be partially shell-mitted. It's partially constructed. And of course, being the largest location around, it was natural that a lot of people would choose it as you know, like a holy site, a, a place of pilgrimage, perhaps. They put the chief's tent up there. Uh, you know, we don't really know because the Spanish weren't great about keeping records after they moved in. <laughs> but we do know that it was continuously occupied there because there was a Spanish mission there. A Spanish mission wrote about them conver- converting the Indians and about how great Jesus was. That They didn't really record much valuable information. But we know that from the first arrivals of Europeans that the natives were on that island. And because of the presence of the middens, we know for a very, very long time. So no, it's it's definitely, it's got that that cliche, the Native American burial mound. It's got almost every ghost cliche there is well, to have. There, there's another really fascinating thing. And, you know, for folks listening, I'm looking at my computer here, just doing some research as Chaz is sharing all this knowledge with us. But There's another thing that stands out. The people that lived in this region going back as far as 5,000 to 3,000 years, they also buried their dead in peat marshes, which people might have heard of like the bog man. I think they have that in like Ireland or Scotland, somewhere there, up there in in England or or UK. And it's really strange because, you know, I don't want to get too far into the whole Damien Eccles stuff, but some of that came up when I was looking into the Damien Eccles thing where he did this ritual where it was like, you know, connected to this type of death where you would kill somebody and put them in a peat marsh, right? And that's not to say that this is what they were doing. Who knows why the natives that lived in Florida back then put their dead in in the peat marshes, but... Uh, who knows, maybe it connects to, you know, the mummification process that happened in, in the old world, right? Like this is a type of mummification in a sense, but it's strange yeah. to it, think. Well, the, the whole island, so one corner of the island is one side of the island. You have the St. John's River, then you have the Atlantic, and then the other two uh, corners are marshland. They're, they go into that really, you know, thick Florida mud muck, little inlets and rivers and channels running through all of it. Well, consider type of mud you step right down and you just. Yeah. Well, consider that that all these bodies are down there and, you know, we have this idea of, oh, it's just swamp lights, right? They're just swamp gas, you know, and you recently went to, you mentioned earlier, you went to Marfa 
And that's a very famous place for people seeing these lights. But, right. you know, that was the big write-off with the UFOs in the early days. It's all, they're just seeing swamp gas. But even swamp, gas. swamp mm-hmm. gas has its own paranormal aspects to it. I mean, if it's a, similar to a mound or even a haunted house. Well, the- that's essentially, that's essentially the para- sentient plasma theory just in a more mundane way. Sentient plasma theory is, yes, it is swamp gas, but that swamp gas is intelligent. (laughs) Right. It's got its own things going on. It's a a living creature, which is certainly, again, it's a theory that that has a lot of pros going for it. Again, the the high strangeness of of all of it, though, it's difficult to say confidently. I, I definitely am never confident being like, that's the one. I have my own theories that I I postulate and write but i i don't even believe them 100 percent. you know i and that's why i'm kind of good at this is because I'm, I'm able to look at these different theories and try to apply them in the field and you know from that trial of process of elimination we can figure out some greater truths and i think the bets case in fort george island as a whole is a great um, testing ground for that kind of stuff absolutely yeah absolutely and that's why it's a pleasure being here to bounce these ideas off and, you know, brainstorm, so to speak, because as although I'm not researching in the field, I'm engaging with a lot of information, talking to folks like yourself. And yeah, a lot of things are standing out. I mean, the marshes are, are certainly interesting. Another thing that I keep thinking about as you're sharing information is the St. John's River and how that connects to what you said about the first Protestant prayer, because St. John the Baptist was very important to the Freemasons. And I know the Spanish were the first down there, but, mm-hmm. you know, Protestants are certainly connected to the Freemasons in a way. And on June 24th, 1717, the Grand Lodge of England was officially formed to celebrate the feast of St. John the Baptist. So, I don't know if there's any (laughs) occult secret society aspects that you've looked into down there, but it is Jacksonville, you know, Jacksonville, Andrew Jackson. He was a a very strong proponent of the Freemasons in a time when most of the country was against them. So, yeah, well, another interesting angle is that the St. John's River flows north. It's one of the few in North America, but not only North America, the world, Um, the most significant one river that flows north is the Nile. Of course, you know, the birthplace of a lot of civilization, a a cradle of of life throughout Africa. And of course, especially important with the Egyptians and their secret schools and and mythology. Now, is that just geographical circumstance or is there something more to that? Is there a reason these North flowing rivers seem to have weird shit attributed to them? It's hard to say. It's interesting that there is this you know, weirdness all the way along the river. And then Fort George Island is like the very last kind of island. It borders the ocean and it's the last thing the water touches as it flows out. And of course, in that area is where you had the first sighting of the St. John's River monster. These goes by many names. Pinky is one of his names. I think some of them call him John because he's in the St. John's. But all up and down the river, people have seen, you know, your classical kind of plesiosaur archetype of a a sea monster, which of course, most people familiar with biology know that the chances of those being actual creatures, probably pretty low, but 
they do tend to pop up in these areas of high strangeness. I mean, again, with Loch Ness and Aleister Crowley and all the occult shit going on there for centuries, Fort George Island has a, a similar background and you have these weird things popping up in and around. It, it really seems to be whatever the nature of this phenomenon is, whether it's sentient plasma or it's spaceships that can travel and teleport, the the side effect seems to be space-time fuckery. Something, the the ripples it sends from occurring seem to, to leave these remnants of high strangeness. It's it's kind of like really the more I investigate the paranormal, the more if I had to compare it to a fictitious reality, it gets more and more hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy every day where it's really ludicrous and ridiculous at the end of the day. Shit that just doesn't really make sense. And all of it, it almost seems intentional not to make sense. And that's probably, you know, us hitting some kind of limitation and understanding. Some people think AI will get us there, but I'm pretty sure we're only building AIs to count money faster. <laughs> no one's building the paranormal AI like they need to be. Right. <laughs> but maybe one day, <laughs> who knows? But right now we, we, we're left with these impossibilities in our reality. And that really is what the paranormal is at the end of the day is something impossible happening in reality and you know when it happens to an individual and it there's no physical trace evidence we, we all blow it off but you know these these instances they're becoming harder and harder to blow off because they're not happening to just one person thousands of people are seeing these these things in the sky hundreds are seeing the footprints left by bigfoot you know, thousands across the globe live with some kind of poltergeist activity in their home. And most people are just like, eh, you know, we just get over it. Every once in a while, you have a Christian who gets real freaked out and they make a conjuring movie about it. But for the most part, these things occur and, and reality isn't as solid and plain as, as we're, you know, taught it is. And so examining these outliers and these artifacts it's it's the best way to get that better grasp of understanding what's really going on. And it's really shooting in the dark. You know, it really is. There's not like until we can really get our hands on one, <laughs> slap them around a little bit, well, get some answers. <laughs> on that note, can we ever? I mean, do you think it's some sort of other dimensional phenomena or something that we can only perceive with our you know visual cap capabilities rather than like physical you know maybe we're seeing it with a sort of dream sight because i often wonder you know both of us during this interview we're both smoking cannabis and it's something i do almost every podcast and all right let's take a moment to thank our sponsor smile brilliant and tell you about a brand new product that you may need okay one of the most common causes of grinding and day clenching is stress right we're all stressed these days trust me if your family thinks you're crazy maybe that's stressing you out and if you clench and grind your teeth it's going to result in the enamel cracking and chipping which can lead to infection take it from me i've had it happen enamel doesn't ever grow back so once you lose it it's gone and you know ice cream hot soup forget about it your teeth are going to be too sensitive here's the thing smile brilliant and the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast have a deal for you 
All right, you get 20% off when you use the promo code CRAZY, C-R-A-Z-Y, all capital letters, and get yourself a custom night guard. That's right, small, medium, large, no matter how big your jaw, no matter how big your teeth, they've got a custom night guard for you as low as $45 per guard and reorders as low as $25 per guard. So what are you doing? Get your dental health fixed and straightened up. Smile Brilliant. Remember, use promo code CRAZY. I use Smile Brilliant at night and now my jaw feels great. No more clicking and popping, especially when I wear these headphones. So hey, Use that promo code CRAZY today and get yourself a night guard smile brilliant. Now let's get back to this episode. I think that my experiences on psychedelics have sort of helped me move closer to understanding some of these things that are at play in our reality. But I know you've done experiments where you you take psychedelics and have a, a sort of outcome that you're or an intention that you're setting you're not just like all right i'm gonna fuck myself up man let's get crazy you know like you're not like partying with these psychedelics you're actually using them with intention to and and scientific exploration you know that's that's really what it it comes across as because you always have some really fascinating info to share but do you think there's a side of that that could be like you know, the observer effect where your brain gets to or your your human capabilities get to a certain extent where now your perception is actually open to these things. And now because cannabis and other psychedelics are more widespread, they've influenced our culture so much that more and more and more people are becoming open to this type of higher dimensional perception, we'll say, for lack of a, a more precise term. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a possibility. It's something that, you know, we can't discount. I'm sure there's a, it's one of those things. And this, this happens all the time in the paranormal. I'm sure there's like a Latin word for it, but I've been using the word phototicism. And it's when a piece of evidence can be used for like the skeptical argument and the believer argument. And that the the that one's definitely one of those ones because I can see like a skeptic sitting in doing a, a podcast being like, well, yeah, there's more pot smokers, so that's why people are seeing more UFOs because everyone's high more all the time. And then me and you are gonna be like, yeah, man, we're seeing more UFOs because we're high all the time. But yeah, I, I do think that that definitely has a, a potential. You know, I, I think I it's it. more about. I think it's more about philosophical argument, though. When when I research the paranormal, there are there I I rank pieces of of information. The light spheres, these sphere archetypes, that's one that ranks very very close to the top because it's so consistent amongst all of these different phenomena. That's one at the top. The very top one, though, the very thing that is the root of phenomenon, it seems to be that every single one has this some kind of story. There's always some kind of story, a, an original story. A perfect example of this is in Pascagoula, Mississippi. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Pascagoula abductions. So this one's super weird, really good abduction case. It was investigated by the local police. They like put a wire in the room. They try to like catch them making lies and stuff. It's considered one of the best you know, firsthand, because 
these two dudes, they were fishing along this river. They see this UFO, this flying disc. They get hit with this flash of purple light, and they see these three metallic robot-looking dudes. They have cones for ears and a cone on top of their head. No face. They kind of look like the day after tomorrow guy, and they just kind of flew at them. Bam, they black out. One dude doesn't recover, doesn't remember anything after this point. The other dude remembers being on the ship, having the medical examination, your classic abduction experience. And they they wake up on the side of the river and they immediately go to the police and be like, hey, we just got fucking UFO'd. And the police, yeah, they, they try to catch him in this lie. They try to like, they put a recorder in the room and they don't tell him, which was legal back then in Mississippi. Might still be today, folks. Remember, always ask for your lawyer. But they try to catch him out. And no, these guys were, they were stunned. They were shocked. They were afraid. They did, you know, the lie detector back then, which again was still decent science at that point. Both dudes passed. And yeah, it's considered this really well investigated abduction experience. And it's a perfect, capture of that high strangeness because it's these weird robot entities but the most interesting part that again no one ever talks about is that this little stretch of river they're on it's it's part of this massive river i think it initially links up with the mississippi at some point breaks off into this other river but the little stretch of river they were on is called singing river and it was named that by the french governor of louisiana because when he was there he heard this ghostly song. And when he asked his native guides, what, what's up with this ghost song? They were like, oh yeah, that's ghosts. This tribe, they were going to war with another tribe. They knew they were going to lose. So they just chanted their death song and they drowned themselves in this section of the river. And so you can hear their, their song. And so that's the, the story. And again, that's reported from some French dude translated from some native dude, supposedly. So we don't know how legit the story is, but we know there's a story. There's a weird ghostly story. Again, the Mothman, Point Pleasant. Before all that high strangeness, John Keel and everything, the bridge collapsed way, way back. There was Chief Cornstalk who was captured and killed by settlers in that area. After they signed this treaty, they killed him by accident. It was this horrible tragedy, but he laid a curse on the land. He has said this spooky curse and all the settlers reported having this horrible activity in Chief Cornstalk's curse. Again, hundreds of years ago, a story. And this is something that in all of these locations, there's always some kind of weird story first. And perhaps, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we're talking about is the weed opening our perception? Absolutely. But the original psychedelic drug is a story. Right. If you've thought about if you've pictured anything I've said today in your head, then you you went on a little trip. We do it all the time. So we don't even recognize it as like a hallucinatory experience. But it is you're picturing something in your head. I can see the Betts Castle right now when I close my eyes. It's it's a, a hallucination. And that little shift seems to be enough to kickstart whatever this phenomenon is to, to allow it to occur. Now, again, that's just the theory, but I do know the story element is consistent. There's always a spooky story. That's yeah. how all of these encounters start. Yeah, man. Wow. Well said. Well said. I, I'm totally with you on that point about imagination being, you know, really an original version of what we consider now like a hallucination or a trip. Mm -hmm. Like 
and that's where it all is. And it's interesting because I was just last month in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in the heart of Amish farmland. And I actually had the opportunity to speak to an Amish person and he asked me where I was from. And I just thought to myself, like, you know, I wonder if in his mind he knew what I was talking about when I went into detail because someone who's never looked at the internet, someone who's never probably read too many books. I mean, outside of the ones that they have about, you know, the religion and whatnot, like it just, it's interesting to think about us as human beings at this point, technologically, so to speak, with the mm -hmm. access to photos at the rate that we have on our phones and computers and books, all this thing is so widespread that, you know, you and I can sit here and have a pretty deep conversation and I'm able to picture most of what you're saying. Unfortunately, not everybody has that access to information, but that's part of this like great awakening. I don't think necessarily you have to be smoking pot. You could be a completely sober person and, and experience all of this stuff. So I'm glad you made that point, but there is, there is something to it where you like sharpen your intuitive mind in a way, if you do it right. And also you also have the p potential to erase some of the biases that are culturally programmed into us that maybe prevent yeah. us from from seeing this kind of stuff so you're right to say like oh it's a double-edged sword and the skeptics would argue the same thing against us but to that their you know to their point they haven't really even experienced what we're talking about if they have that stance so who are they to judge right so i think people right. are catching on to that nowadays with the whole skeptic argument is a lot of them are just materialists who don't want to get outside of their comfort zone and well yeah it's it's becoming pretty ironic that a lot of the skeptical explanations are getting more conspiratorial than the the logical explanation right. especially when it comes to these these naval videos and stuff i'm so tired mm. of seeing like i'm a computer programmer and i can this video is fake and i'm like dude the the dude slash chick who filmed the video is a perfect. They fly planes for their living. They're on Twitter. They're like, no, this is. A, I saw this. <laughs> this is a real thing. It's not like they worked at some top secret lab. It's literally just some dude like you or I. If we were drafted, well, you and know, they're they're not the top secret operatives like Lou Elizondo. I can I understand a lot of those questions can come into those kind of characters you know even your bob Lazars. right right yeah they had some top secret clearance maybe they're in on maybe they're doing some weird psyop stuff i could see that like no this person just flies planes dude <laughs> like they fly planes and they're telling you they saw a thing that's not a plane and you're gonna look at a black and white photo and try to tell me it's something that is totally explainable it's the opposite of what we used to be doing right we used to hold up a black and white photo of a ufo and be like that's a ufo and they'd be like that's ridiculous you can't tell that from a black and white photo but nowadays we're expected to believe that they can tell it is a weather balloon from mm. a black and white photo right and yeah again discounting these witnesses and so yeah i again people live in we we, we share a reality but people also live in their own realities and so some people's realities, they they latch onto these things and they make them more elaborate and they craft their own stories to it. Again, because stories is a hell of a drug, you know? Everyone, 
you probably know someone who's overdosed on some crazy ass stories and they might be a little too far gone. I'm looking at you, super soldier people. But again, there's these these stories do lead to a shifting in perception and a shifting in understanding. And nowadays we have this, as you were saying, we live with technology that's essentially magic. I mean, what we're doing right now, if you went back just 200 years ago, they'd be like, fuck, burn those guys. <laughs> They're witches. Right. You know, th this right. is essentially magic. So we're living in a reality where the idea of a craft being able to travel from a different planet or a different place, it's, it's not far-fetched. It's perfectly reasonable. And that seems to be making UFOs real. It, it seems to be this, again, it's a chicken or the egg question. Who knows which one's coming first? But the stories is always there. That's one thing we can say. There's always an egg, at least, right? Sometimes it doesn't hatch into a chicken, but there's always an egg. <laughs> Sometimes it hatches something else. Right. But there's an egg and the egg is the fucking stories. And so I think when we look at store, re-examine stories like the Betts one and are able to look at it from this more encompassing perspective, I think it's crucial. And I think it's something that is kind of taken off in the paranormal. I think the the investigators who are growing up with the internet are kind of growing up with the ability to recognize this big picture you know before you had to do your research through like monthly magazines and like paranormal books and i don't know if you've ever gone to a non like occult bookstore and try to like buy paranormal books it's rough man there's a lot of jesus shit out there <laughs> kind of drowns oh, yeah. out everything else oh yeah there's a lot there's a lot of people who flat out won't sell any of the like good shit. So well, it's, I'm sure it's, down there in Florida, yeah, I could see that. Going, uh huh. You got to take a road uh, trip up to New England. You'll you won't be disappointed by the oh, some of the man, selections. The, the bookstores in Mexico City, man. They oh man, oh, insane kind of drifted and shit there. But yeah, again, collecting these stories though on mass in a way that investigators haven't been able to do before, you know, and uh, if you're a UFO guy or a ghost guy nowadays, you're, you're, your shit's going to bleed over. You're going to start hearing the other stuff before you were very much in your own niche. And that's both parties are guilty on that one. I mean, the ghost guys, the technology's bad. The theories are bad. Most of it's bad. The UFO guys, unreasonable snobs a lot of the times <laughs> your your MUFONs and stuff you got a lot of hucksters out there posing as officials and it's it's a, it's a bad look there's a lot of scam going on on that side but always throughout you've had people genuinely interested in weird shit you know who've experienced it or who know people who've experienced it or who are just curious about it and they know something's going on but these guys are on some some kind of other trip with their stories. <laughs> and nowadays, we're, we're hearing the bleed over. We're seeing the, the commonalities in a way that wasn't possible with podcasts like these and shows that touch on subjects beyond just, you know, Ooh, I saw something spooky in the haunted house or, you know, 
on Zeta Rectilii today. They're planning another attack on Mars, you know? <laughs> There's something going on between those two realities. There's a truth. There is something that's affecting our reality. And nowadays we're, we're making those, those steps forward. And I, you know, been striving that to, for my projects, but I've been seeing a lot of other paranormal projects that are, are taking on that perspective, that ultra terrestrials perspective that they're not, you know, just from a different planet. They're from a different reality. There's something going on beyond simple physics. You know, they're, we're not just flying here from somewhere else. And the the impact of all of these things, it's it's, you know, whether it's a glitch in the matrix or it is just unknown phenomenon within nature, it's something. And with this new magical technology, we can perhaps get to the, the bottom of it. Who knows? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's interesting to to think about. The technology aspect, because I have had a, a conversation on this show before about like how camera equipment seems to fail and all these like things that you would use oh, to yeah. record phenomena just coincidentally like seem to break at odd moments as you investigate. I'm sure I asked you that the last time we were here, but has that happened to you? Is that true for you? Like that there's been like little hiccups with your equipment that when you go out and investigate it? I mean, you seem like the kind of guy that uses a, a type of equipment that never fails, which is a pen and paper. There's no equipment malfunctions yeah. <laughs> with a notebook, you know? A notebook and then a good buddy to witness something with me mm. because no one's going to believe you. It's just me telling the fucking story. It'll be like, you're crazy. But yeah, that's that's essentially the 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 best route because, yeah, that that's something that's been reported by the, the best research done into the phenomenon is that it's a fucking tricky bastard. The, the stuff from Skinwalker Ranch is the best example where you had scientists like red-blooded scientists more qualified than I'll ever be to do anything. These guys were qualified trying to record this paranormal phenomenon and it would always occur off screen. And that's something I discovered through some correspondence with a group of Russian poltergeist ghost dudes they have this video and it is one of the worst videos ever it totally looks fake because everything occurs within this door frame and it's almost like a marionette show and i would totally have disbelieved it if it weren't for the other videos that it's, it's so bad and at one point this door flies in and it cuts off another part of the door frame and so you can barely see anything and this, this, it, oh, it kind of looks like a person, maybe the top of a bald person or something. And then it looks like it grabs a thing off the shelf and tosses it up. Totally looks fake. These investigators say, no, it's legit. We tried to put cameras in that hallway, looking down the hallway, doesn't work. We try to put it in the room in front of the door frame. It won't do anything. If we put it right here, where it's looking through the door frame has this very limited section of view, then it does all this weird shit. And I'm, so, okay, that's what I'm having a friend translate this through, through a weird Russian website. And so I get the next video and stuff. The next video is the one where I'm like, okay, well that's fucking weird because it's a bird cage with a live bird flies into view 
in front of this door frame, slides on the ground at speed and stops, almost like it was on a cord or something being pulled, stop. But the bird inside is in this weird trance. It's it's like like almost it's not asleep, its eyes are open, but it's like unfazed. And they like like snap in its face and it wakes up. And so they run down the hall because this bird cage was in a room down the hall. The doors closed. They open the door. The dog is asleep in front of the door. Or they opened it. Dog was asleep blocking this door frame. The kids in the bedroom also asleep. They flick on the lights. They're like, where's the bird? How did you? And they're like, I don't know. It was here a second ago. What were you talking to? And they're like, what do you mean? And so that one, I'm like, well, fuck. That's pretty bizarre they had to drug at least two animals to pull that off and you know if they're hucksters and they're russian they might be but it, it's bizarre and if we're taking these people for the word this is again the phenomenon it's tricky it has to it only occurs when there's this possibility of it being fake but also if there's the possibility of it being real and that's where the story kind of has that root. So that's another piece of evidence that I would put near the top with, you know, piece of evidence, piece of theory, I guess. Uh, it's got to be, it's got to have a story. It's got to have some kind of origin, but it's also got to have that ability to not believe in it. Because if it was true, it's true. It's going to be there. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's going to be there every single time you show up. That room has a piano in it. When you walk in, there's going to be a fucking piano. But if there's not, if it's true sometimes, it has the possibility not to be true. Well, then it's fucking paranormal because it's, it's, it becomes one of these glitches in our, our reality. Damn. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we're kind of coming towards our end point here on my micro SD card. So I might have to switch that out. But I want to ask you this. When it comes to everything we're talking about, there's some people, and I just interviewed a really brilliant guy from MIT and several other colleges named Rizvan Verk. And, or, yeah, sorry, Rizwan Verk. And he, uh, he wrote a book called The Simulated Multiverse. And there's a lot of people that are saying, oh, this is all just like a simulation. You use the term glitch in the matrix or something like that earlier. And, I'm wondering, like, how much stock do you put into that? You think this is a result of us having the internet or, or maybe being in some kind of simulation? You, do you put any stock in those theories? Well, I definitely, uh, I'm definitely guilty of, of using that new tech. Again, technology for our monkey brains is essentially magic. And so when we're describing or trying to describe these magical properties, we use this technological language. It works the best. It really has become the best way to, to describe a lot of these concepts. And that gets into this whole other thing, the theory of nonsense by Dr. Raymond Mooney. And he's a guy who's done a bunch of research into the near-death experience. I think he actually termed NDE. That's one of his big credits. But this is more of a like logical, philosophical kind of work about how understanding is formed and creates reality. And it's basically the idea that nonsense, you know, we typically... We do a bad thing in English in particular, where we attribute nonsense to things that are not true. But 
that is a fallacy. Nonsense is non-tangible information, something we can't understand, right? It doesn't make any sense. If it makes sense, then it could be true or false. But if it doesn't make sense, then it's nonsense. It doesn't, it doesn't have value to it. And that applies, we use nonsense as a logical filler in almost every aspect of our lives, whether it's religion. We can all think of nonsensical things in religion. We don't want to offend anyone, so we won't get into specifics. But science uses nonsense as well. The Big Bang Theory. Everything exploded, nothingness exploded into everythingness 10 billion years ago. That sentence means nothing. It, it is nonsensical. There's no logic. It, it contradicts itself. It's a classic piece of nonsense. Dr. Seuss uses that kind of nonsense to entertain children. It's the it's clearly nonsense. Again, we use it in religion as well. And it's it's this framework that's kind of sort of helped us understand ideas like spirituality and reality and origin of stuff. And but it doesn't quite work. Well, now we have more terminology, though. We're, we're creating terminology that's getting closer to it. And that, I think, is simulation theory. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that means it's true or not, but it's becoming a framework within to understand the complexities of our reality. It's bringing us certainly, I think, a step closer to, to understanding it, right? It's it makes more sense to explain reality as a simulation than it does to say nothing exploded into everything <laughs> 10 billion years ago or whatever. Or then Jesus Christ or God, Jesus created the universe in seven days. That also doesn't make sense, right? The, we understand how time works that, again, nonsensical. Right. But to say it's a simulation, well, that kind of makes sense. And so we're taking a step forward a little bit. And it's and that's really what I think good paranormal investigation does is it adds steps to help help that process. Well, it seems like this concept of like a fractalization, like eventually if we spend enough time building, we're going to build a replica of the universe itself. And this is a concept I tried to get into with Riz. Rizwan and it went over well. I think he understood what I was trying to say in my layman speak, but that's what I think about when it comes to this concept you just said. Like, it's not that we've always been living in a simulated universe or something like that. It's like we're just now figuring out a, a less nonsensical explanation. So mm -hmm. it's still nonsensical. Maybe there will be a time a hundred years from now where we have a more exact description of what's really yeah. going on here but it seems to be more like a, a realm of uh, layers you know of different types of realities you know it, that intersect with one another you know because the mm -hmm. what what's true for us here as human beings doesn't seem to be true you know as far as capabilities and limitations go when we look at some of these creatures that we've discussed today or beings or entities right. you know yeah, and, and I think Dr. Moody put it really well in that book. He compared it to chemistry. Well, he compared the process to chemistry. I'm comparing it, chemistry now, to the paranormal. But it started as alchemy, right? And what was that? It was a bunch of weird dudes coming up with made-up words, getting high on fumes in laboratories and dungeons and castles and shit throughout the medieval times into the Renaissance. And eventually, those made-up terms and weird substances turned into actual chemicals, into the, the 
periodic table that we use today. Now we say those terminal, I say platinum, and we all can picture what I mean. And we can, we know it's valuable. It has all of this intrinsic information attached to it. It's become real. And the, I guess what I, I guess the root of it is we're at the fume huffing stage right now when it comes to reality science. I'm not going to even call it paranormal investigation anymore because it branches out into so much more. It's reality science. We're we're in the dungeon, smoking fumes, doing mushrooms and shit, and trying to figure out and establishing pieces of nonsense that turn into sense. Trying to sift through the the vast wafts of information and picking out the ones that are tangible. And again, adding to this framework so we can take the next step. Whether it is we're plugged into some kind of computer matrix like the fucking movie, or it's the biocentric point of view, which I tend to lean towards, where reality is created by the observation of reality. It's this, it's this yin-yang circle we're in. And we, us viewing reality, nature creates it. And so this, these things, UFOs, we're now accepting this as a real possibility. It's going to be a real thing. And if we all think it's aliens from a different planet, it might be aliens from a different planet. Mm. And that gets to that tulpa slash egregore theory, which a lot of ghost hunters apply. But it seems to apply to, to these larger concepts like UFOs. And again, it's hard to say... If if the UFOs do become reality, it's hard to say which exact reality they'll take. We know a lot of people won't even accept it as a reality, right? They could land on the White House lawn tomorrow. They missed their opportunity to do it because if there was one, it was years ago. Because if they'd landed tomorrow, you would have fucking people going on the internet, deep fakes. It's all deep fakes. <laughs> they faked it. CGI. Look. There was a glitch in the camera. That means all of it's fake. <laughs> the earth is flat. Jesus Christ, amen. And you, you would get that reaction 100%. And so it's hard to say what our reality, the destiny of our reality looks like moving forward. But again, there's there's something going on. There are physical aspects to these phenomenon, whether people 100% believe in them or not. And so that means there's a greater truth. There is some vein of, of permanent reality that's in there. Just like gravity's real 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah, I there's love this concept. There's a physical impact to, to what's going on. Yeah, I love this concept of biocentrism. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense and it explains why there's such a war for our attention culturally, you know, uh, with the mass media and with technology itself. And the more attention we put into this technological beast, the larger it grows. And that could be for, you know, it could be a, a beast of burden or it could be a beast of, of benefit and abundance. And it, it might be slaughtered on the human altar and, and bring a bunch of abundance. Who knows what will happen with this digital monstrosity? It could become you know, a masterpiece rather than a monstrosity. So I think we have to keep that in mind as well. And and yeah, I don't know. I tend to, to think that we as human beings are stewards of the planet and of the ecosystem. So that biocentrism makes a lot of sense. And I, I've seen that phrase, that concept, but I haven't 
quite heard it in that way before. And very well said, There's brother. A, a great book by Dr. Robert Lanza, who, who gets into this concept. And okay. I don't know if he coined the term or not. He might have been the guy who coined it, but it's not too long of a read. It is pretty technical at points, but it, it, it does really kind of line up the the scientific argument and that you know it gets into the the actual quantum mechanics it's not just using quantum mechanics to say invisibility it's being like okay so particles are dependent on observance and it gets into but it's pretty digestible he's a neurosurgeon and he's going from that that perspective of you know our our brain is the key corner of what we experience as reality um and yeah, it's it's from a totally scientific aspect. If you're going in there looking for fun UFO stories, you're going to be bummed because <laughs> there's none. But the, the concepts and the ideas, same with the theory of nonsense one, the concepts and ideas are super important when you're thinking about these subjects. It, it really helps to, to redefine. And again, one of those other things is really trying not to apply that moralistic good versus evil imprint on a lot of the paranormal phenomenon because that one seems to be heavy and that again is actually one of the things i've noticed about the phenomenon when it comes to its similarities with the psychedelic experience you know people are either really about it you know they get abducted by aliens and they feel this oneness with the universe and they realize they're part of a larger galactic community peace, love, space, communism. And then the other people fucking hate it. They freak out. Terrible. Took in the middle of the night, butthole probed. I hated it. It was the worst thing ever. Those are the two reactions you pretty much get when you someone takes psychedelics the first time. And, you know, that argument still pre predominates throughout the psychedelic movement, right? It's the argument of whether these substances are good, you know, they're enlightening, they're peace-bringing, or you have the, you know, conservative argument of, oh, no, they're evil. Don't do drugs. They're bad. Drugs drugs will corrupt the youth. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is from Satan and fuck all that. And, you know, people who have experienced these things and use them, you know, logically and experiment with them, you know, tend to know that, yeah, you have some good trips. You have some bad trips. The substance itself is is really more those feelings are really coming from you right we figured that out at some point if right you, it's more of a neutral tool right? that that can offer you positive or negative benefits right exactly like like most things in nature you know there's right. there's a neutrality to it is the lion fucking evil for eating the gazelle i don't fucking know man that's why i'm not going to try to figure it out <laughs> and so that's the same i try to apply to this paranormal phenomenon Everything it gets real spooky and you know grunge and Halloween, which is awesome. That's why I got into it. I still love it. <laughs> I, I love a spooky story. It's my favorite kind of story. You know, a spooky story has stakes. It's it's that's again, it's the best kind of psychedelic to get you to potentially see some kind of stuff like that. Well, and I'm so uh, glad you brought that up because I wanted to revisit your earlier point about stories i think they're tremendously important and i actually maybe you're aware i started a new podcast called esoteric america where we invite folks on like yourself also listeners who maybe it's their first time doing a podcast like this of this kind 
and we asked them to create a Canva presentation, which is free to make. Anybody could do it and take us on a tour around their local area, wherever they live and, and look into whatever strange things are going on. We, We've talked to someone in Indiana, Minnesota, Tennessee, South Carolina, and Washington. So we're going all over the map. We definitely want to have you on at some point. Maybe we could get like a magnifying glass and just look at one area. Maybe it's this area we talked about here in Florida or, or maybe a new area that you've come across. We're trying to keep it limited to just the Americas. We, we don't want to go too far fetched. We definitely America's North and South. Yes. Yes. And that might be more difficult. Well, there's some Chilean stuff. Yeah. <laughs> eventually we might open it up to the whole, any, wherever there's an English speaker who's willing to come on. I, I don't know if we could find a translator to, to cover most of South America, but Hey, if we find like a, a bilingual co-host who wants to join us that might help but yeah i'd love to have you on that show at some point and i know you have a bunch of really awesome cutting edge information that you keep to your patreon tell us a little bit about that brother because i know you have a really awesome patreon i was a patron myself for a while and yeah i'm wondering what people should do to support you you have this new book coming out you have a past book you've written What's going on? Where could people follow up with you, Chaz? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Buy the book. It's a place between time and space. The link will be in the description, I'm sure. And yeah, that's the story of the Betts house. It's kind of this big picture. It also goes into my investigation inside the home. I'm pretty sure I'm the first to do an overnight investigation. Again, it's on government land. No one's gotten permission formally to do it, which actually brings me to the second thing I want to plug. Most important thing I want to plug is a petition to save the Betts house. That will also be in the, the description. So the, the property itself is in danger. It's, it's dilapidated and it's going to, one wing of it has already collapsed and there's going to be, it's, it's no plan to, to save it, even though it's this historic structure with decades of history built by a famous it's really uh, if it's the only only thing you do today please go sign that petition so we can get this this house saved and we can save these stories for future generations so people can continue to go and see this crazy looking house and hear these crazy stories also there's so few castles in the united states come on we gotta say we got like two of them we gotta save this one Mm. Let's go. And back. it is really cool. People could look up the Neff house. You might find more pictures that way. But yeah, Bet's fear. Go to my Instagram to see a bunch of pictures of the house nowadays. Well, yeah, you were there. Stage. You were there your, yourself. So I'm sure you got some really awesome footage. Oh, man. Yeah. And then the Patreon as well. Where could people follow up there? Yeah, that's patreon.com slash Chad of the Dead. I try to do monthly research dossiers where I kind of publish a bunch of the Stuff I've been working on, whether it's stories from upcoming books or articles yet to be published. I kind of key in my closest fans about what's going on there. Also, there's all kinds of stickers and merch and stuff like that. All thanks to Paranormality Magazine. Go check them out. They published my book. I'm going to be on the cover in September to see my beautiful mug. And I'll be in Tallahassee on October 22nd giving a, a lecture about the Betts House at the North Florida Paracon. So if you're in that area, come, come see me gab about that and we'll smoke a doobie and talk weird shit. 
Um, so yeah, follow me at Chaz of the Dead on all the social medias, TikToks, Instagrams, Twitters, and chazofthedead.com to follow all of my work, whether it's podcasts, articles, or books. You can find links to all my stuff there. Right on. Well, Chaz, it's been great talking to you. This has been our third conversation. Folks can find you on my show, Illuminati Confirm, that I do with Juan and Chris. And you've done the show with Juan since that people can check out on the Juan on Juan podcast. And all of the podcast appearances you've done are available on your website. So just go check that out. Listen to episode 118 if you haven't already. Chaz joined me back then. And I hope to talk to you again soon. I'm sure you'll be coming up with new material as usual. And I'm excited to hear about this Africa trip as long as you return safely. We will, your, our prayers and thoughts will be with you as you're over there. But I'm sure it's it's going to be <laughs> magnificent. We we haven't talked to anybody from Africa, but I think we've spoken to someone on every continent through the course of this podcast. Maybe not South America yet either, but those are the two on the list, South America and well, Africa. I'll have to, I'll, I'll report in live when I'm in Africa. Well, when you're out there, year, yeah. Well, see yeah. if there's any African podcasters that you could get in touch with. Who knows? Maybe there's some paranormal Africa oh, yeah. podcasts. Well, I'm going to some weird backwoods places. So we'll, we'll I'm not sure how many podcasts. Be, <laughs> we'll see what's going on. <laughs> right on. The first podcaster in those, Africa. Those ghosts. Right on. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right. And that is our second conversation on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Chaz of the Dead. He, of course, has been on my other podcast, Illuminati Confirmed. And yeah, wow really awesome to see a guy like him focus on a place in our first conversation we spent a little bit of time talking about south america and he discusses that in his book at length but today we focus mostly on florida and that was really cool considering the new podcast that myself tara roman and chad stemke have been creating uh, over the past few months it's called esoteric america it's a tour through the great states of the United States and really anywhere in North or South America. Um, and we take it town by town, city by city, state by state. We're just going along and inviting local researchers, listeners to do some research. Really anybody. You don't have to be an author. Uh, you don't have to be a professional researcher listen to the show and you feel confident enough and you get the formula of what everyone else is kind of bringing to the table well apply that to your area research where you live and hit us up send us an email but first subscribe follow like give us a rating and review and support us over there at esoteric america for now you can find all of our youtube videos on my family thinks i'm crazy dot uh i'm sorry you can find them on our YouTube channel, the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy YouTube channel. Um, you can also find them on Rockfin for free. You don't have to be a paid Rockfin subscriber to watch them on rockfin.com. And there will never be any ads on the rockfin.com version. So yeah, maybe try watching on Rockfin. And while you're at it, check out all the other really cool 
videos we have on our Rockfin. There's a lot of great content there, as well as the Patreon. I just started a new Patreon-only podcast called The Synchro Wisdom Dialogue, where I speak to you, the listener, about whatever you want. If you want to find out more information about that and how you can take part, hit me up. Go to my link tree. It's in the description. You could just go to linktree slash mystic mark podcast and you'll find all the information you need to join in on the fun and be a part of the synchro wisdom dialogue it's a podcast between me and whoever joins me it's available for the patreon audience only right now it might also be available for the Kofi store subscribers we now have a monthly membership available for people who dislike patreon and want to support another way well you can support with Kofi. you don't get all the same benefits that the patreon supporters get just yet but i'm hoping one day it'll be a clone or we'll just have it all on the myfamilythinksomecrazy.com website but that is expensive uh so please support the show so we can get that membership domain all under the same uh name and website and all that good stuff and course the one-time donations certainly help with that so please support the show with a one-time donation pick up a copy of the synchromistic exploration of the ever-expanding now travel guide physical copies coming soon very very soon we also have t-shirts you could support the show by picking up a t-shirt we got mugs so you can warm yourself up as we move into these colder months we got sweatshirts and all that really awesome custom-made art that you've come to know and love from the show uh the episode each episode no matter which podcast it is that i do has its own unique artwork and i have been putting some of those designs as t-shirts on the uh, teespring store so you know value for value if you're finding value out of this show send it back my way and support whatever way suits you uh however you feel you would like to contribute i give you a lot of options and i'm trying to condense it down but you know the show's growing we need to get it out there so i'm gonna keep saying this in the extended outro uh leave us a five star rating and a positive review on apple or wherever you listen to the show i mean there are other places you could leave ratings and reviews so if you're not listening on apple uh, give us a, a five-star on Podcast Addict. Give us a rating and review on Podverse, wherever you listen, wherever. And immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you find yourself in the now. Dipping dive above the earth circling. I'm 
I'm spiraling, sacred geometry, studying my old selves like it's anthropology, honestly, feeling like life's a comedy, as big a game as a paper run economy, I've been playing safe but safest for the week of hard way, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart, wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit, uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose, wait, Wait, wait. 